The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. We, uh, we have four chapters left. We are two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the book, and today our, our text Today is these 18 verses in the 10th chapter of, of, of Hebrews. These form kind of the end of a very large section that began all the way back in chapter 3. Sort of the meat and the centerpiece of, of the book of Hebrews. And, and that all kind of winds down today. But pretty much every scholar who studies and knows the book of Hebrews recognizes that at verse 18, going into verse 19 of chapter 10, there is a, there's a, lo- a large transition in the book. Up to this point, beginning all the way back in chapter 3, we have looked at how Jesus is superior to the Mosaic Law. And so going all the way back to chapter 3, we learned how Jesus is greater than Moses himself. We we learned uh, about the high priesthood of Jesus all the way from the middle of chapter 4 up and through our text today. Looking at the many different facets of the priesthood of Jesus. Today, we look at his once and for all sacrifice. And then beginning next week as we jump into the second half of the 10th chapter of Hebrews, we begin to look at sort of the, uh, the imperative aspect or the command aspect or the kind of so what aspect of the argument that the author here has been making. In light of what he's been revealing to us about who Jesus is, beginning in, in next week's passage, we begin to have these, these commands and these marching orders to, to, we're called to faith and endurance and perseverance in light of who Jesus is. And so today as we read this, is serves very much, again, as, as we have seen over the last several weeks, as a summary or a review of all that we've covered up to this point. So let's read the 18 verses together, and then we'll kind of unpack them. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, quote, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book, end quote. Verse 8. When he said above, quote, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, end quote, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, he will, he, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never Take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, quote, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. Now, obviously, again, as has often been the case with Hebrews, lots of citations, quotations of the Old Testament, many direct quotes and allusions to Old Testament passages found in these 18 verses, and there's much to unpack. Uh, I, just want to sh- I just want us to see something uh, kind of from a, from a bird's eye view just really quickly before we get into the meat and potatoes of the teaching. Go back to verse 1, and, and though it's a convoluted sentence with many commas, I want us to kind of see the basic message here of verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The law, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. Those who, who, who sought to worship under the old covenant could never be made perfect. And this is something that the author has shared with us in previous chapters. Chapter 7, verse 19, he, he wrote that the law made nothing perfect. Chapter 9, verse 9, he said the law cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So we've seen the deficiency of the Old Testament covenant, of the Old Covenant. We've seen that throughout the the book of Hebrews. But then when we look to verse 14, now in our passage, there's a different message here. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, that being Jesus Christ, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those those who are being sanctified. And so the trajectory of our passage is the picture where there, nothing is perfected under the old covenant, but through the offering of Christ, now there, there, there is this once and for all perfecting that takes place for all time, those who are being sanctified. And we've read previously in the book of Hebrews that the Son is perfect forever. Uh, in chapter 12, we're going to read that, that we, we, we are called as disciples of Jesus to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I want us to see this theme of perfection and imperfection. There's a way that, that, that is imperfect and leads to imperfection. The author is telling the original audience, no longer go to that way. No longer look at that covenant. No longer turn to the old way of doing things. There is a, there is a new covenant and a new reality in Christ that leads to perfection. So there's this picture of perfection we see in these verses, which I think is like a, it's a high-level theme, and we'll, we'll look at more of the nuance of the passage here in a minute. But, but here's the one thing, is I look at the totality of these 18 verses that the author is getting at through the summary and the review of all the things he's covered up to this point. The, the big idea is simply this, that Christ alone is sufficient to perfect people for all time. Christ alone is sufficient to perfect people for all time. There's no pathway to purity. There's no pathway to perfection outside of Jesus. And the author is making that abundantly clear because remember our audience. Our audience was being called to persevere. They were tempted to turn away from Jesus and turn back to the old covenant practices. And the author is saying, do not do it. The work has been done in Christ. And on on Mother's Day, I got... I, I was thinking about anecdotes involving mothers, you know, wanting to make the, the, uh, the Mother's Day sermon feel a little bit Mother's Day-ish. And I, and I got, to, I got to, to thinking about this idea of work, 
of, of doing work or, or, or work that that's needs to get done. And it reminded me of, of, of motherhood. I, I was just, one today I just Googled and I went on and I watched that old scene from uh, a Christmas story. Remember that old Christmas show? Where they're the, the kids and the dad, they're sitting around the table eating. And for like five minutes, the mom tries to sit down and eat. And every time she sits down to eat, someone else needs something. So she has to get up and she's, she's serving everybody at the table. And then the voiceover says, my mother had not had a hot meal for herself in 15 years. And I thought about the, the never-ending work of motherhood. And of course, uh, today I, I'm, I'm mindful of the mothers in my life. My, my own mother, who's, who's still living and in good spirits in Wisconsin, my wife and my daughter. And I think of the work of motherhood never ending. Moms, can you, can you identify with that idea that the work of motherhood never ends? I'm 47, I'm the baby of our family, and my mother, when I'm at her house, she still is concerned if my coat's warm enough when I go outside, all these years later. When I go there, she's fighting cancer, she's not in great health, and she still serves me food when I'm there. And when I'm traveling, she wants me to call her or text her when I make it so she knows that I'm safe. The work of mothering never ends. I think of my wife, and I, I see the way she supports our children. Our children are at that phase where they're becoming adults, and we're trying to figure out what launching our kids into adulthood looks like, and yet I see my wife tirelessly working on behalf of our children. And then my daughter, she's the mother of a two-year-old, and I don't have to tell you much more about that. That just never ends chasing that little guy around. And the picture here is that they're always standing, never, never able to take a minute off, always working, at least the mothers in my life. And it takes me back to verse 11. Verse 11 of our passage. Every priest in the Old Covenant stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I can't tell you how many times my wife has said, the laundry never ends. It never ends. The work never ends. I clean the house and it's dirty. The dishes pile up. It never ends. And there's the picture here in our passage of the old system, the old covenant. There were these priests, these Aaronic priests that were under, from the family of Levi. They were Levitical priests. And they, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, century in, century out, they stood at the altar performing the duties of priests, never completing them, never finishing them, always having to do the work, never ending. It's a hopeless picture. There's no hope in that. There's no conclusion, no finishing, no, no, no assurance that the work they do is enough on behalf of the people. But we read in verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He didn't sit down because he was lazy. He sat down because every, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He did everything that was ever needed to be done for all time to bring about salvation and perfection to humankind. And so he sits down because he is a priest who's completed the priestly duties. He's made everything, everything necessary for your salvation and mine has been completed in him. And he sits down. And it gets back to the main idea of our passage. Christ alone is, is sufficient to perfect people for all time. So let's look at the passage a little more closely. Let's, I, I see four movements in our passage today that I want to try to help you see. Well, rather wordy, but I got some outlines for you. You can take notes. For those of you that are... Um, Note takers, I encourage you to do so. If you want to highlight or underline uh, in, in your Bible, I'll, I'll give you opportunities to, to notice certain words and phrases and verses that I think are vital for our understanding of this passage. Let's look at, at verses 1 through 4 to begin. And I want you to notice just again that first I, I pointed out earlier, this, pic this picture in verse 1 that, that for since the law 
has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the future form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The summary of that verse is the law can never make perfect those who draw near. Here's what I want you to underline. Just the, the first five verses. The law has but a shadow. Or for five, five, six words. The law is but a shadow. And again, this is review. This is the author reviewing these, la- these 18 verses are sort of the, the, the prologue to his central argument. Or epilogue. Epilogue comes after or prologue comes after? I never remember. Epilogue is after? Or prologue is before? Okay, this is the epilogue, if you will, of the primary argument that the author's made since chapter 3. And here's the first thing I want you to write down when it pertains to verses 1 through 4. The shadow of the old system points to Christ. I know that's review, but the author is repeating this for us. He's even using the phrase shadow again. As he's used previously throughout the letter, he's referred to the Old Covenant as a shadow. He's referred to the, to the instruments of worship in the tabernacle as copies of the heavenly things. There's this idea that they are, there is a facsimile, uh, a, a, a shadow or a copy of a greater heavenly reality. That's been something he's unpacked. And he's telling us that the shadow of the Old System, the Old Covenant, the purpose by which it served was to point to Christ. He said all the way back in chapter 8, verse 5, that these things, they, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And as we've learned over many weeks of looking at, at the old covenant practices as it pertains to this original audience and, and Jewish custom, we, we've learned again and again that animals cannot provide atonement. I read this week that they didn't realize where they were slain, the animals. They had no consciousness of the, sacrif- of the significance of their death. They certainly didn't give their lives voluntarily for the sake of sinners, but these animals were coerced against their will as they were led to the altar to be slain for a temporary short-sighted atonement. Verse 2 says that if the old covenant and its accompanying sacrifices were effective, then the worshipers would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But no matter how many sacrifices that the old system put forth, the the conscience was never cleansed. The, the scriptures up to this point, the text up to this point has made that very clear. The blood was ineffective. The altars that they built the, 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 spilled untold gallons of blood. I did a little research on, on the, 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 te- the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, but also the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. And one of these uh, scholars slash historians talked about how these altars were made with troughs around them. Uh, because there would, have been, there would have been channels of blood that had to continually be diverted away by the gallons from the altar as animal after animal after animal was sacrificed. And with all the sacrifices, all the animals, the millions of gallons of animal blood, the conscience of the worshiper remained defiled. There was, a, there was an external cleansing that was taking place, but an internal impurity that remained in place. And the author up to this point has talked a lot about, about the conscience. If you go back in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, According to this old covenant arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So it was a superficial process. Gallons of blood flowing from the altar and an impure conscience. But the author, a couple weeks ago, chapter 9, verse 14, he assured his audience that in Christ, the new covenant, the new thing, how much more, he says, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that offering of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
And then next week, as we get into our passage next week, he's going to encourage his audience. He's going to say, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And so we get this beautiful picture of the internal work that Christ does. The old covenant simply pointed to that. Animals weren't sufficient. What we needed was the perfect blood of a perfect human, Jesus Christ himself. Look what it says in verse 3. Not only was it inadequate, not only this old covenant system was inadequate, but the author said the sacrifices were a reminder of sins every year. So not only did the animal sacrifices, weren't they, were they not sufficient to purify the conscience of the worshiper, they're also every year when the Day of Atonement would come up on the annual calendar and the people of God would gather in Jerusalem, it actually wouldn't be a hopeful thing for them. It would be a reminder that, the, that it was insufficient to bring forgiveness of sins. It was continually being repeated, and the fact that it had to continually be repeated proved its inadequacy. Repetition of the Old Testament sacrifices, it shows how inadequate they really are. I think about my dad. Uh, My dad was a guy who was very busy. He was a logger, and he was always working. And and we had this little farmette. It was my dad's dream to have a little farmette. And so we had these few little acres in this little, like, gathering of homes in western Montana— and we had pigs and cows and chickens, and we had this well, and we had garden. And it was this kind of like this, like a little Noah's Ark on two acres. And, it was, and we had everything you could possibly cram onto that. Free-range, uh, free-range chickens and free-range geese and turkeys. And, and my dad worked most of the time, so it was just us at home. And, and, he, and, and things would often break. The fence would break. The pump would break. Uh, the electric fence would break. And, uh, uh, and then my dad would fix it. And then he'd go to work all week, living on a job somewhere in the mountains because he was a logger. And it's like, Dad, you fixed nothing. Like 11 minutes after you drove out of the driveway to go to work, the, the well stopped working. And, and we spent our time constantly mending fences, fixing the well, just repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again because we never had the ability to fix it definitively. And that's the picture of the old covenant system. It was something that required nonstop attention. And you couldn't stop paying attention because you had to do these sacrifices on an annual basis because they were inadequate in their efficacy. There was no end in sight. Under the old system, the conscience was never cleansed of sin. There was a reminder of the presence of sin every year. But it was a shadow. It was a shadow. It was a hint. It was a, it was a precursor. It was a type that pointed to something greater that was coming because Christ alone is sufficient to perfect people for all time. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. With the knowledge of the inadequacy of the old system, the, this review... This summary that the author is giving us kind of moves on rather quickly. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's a direct quote of Psalm 40. And here the author of Hebrews puts Christ as the voice of Scripture here, as if Christ is speaking the very words of the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8. And when he had said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold. Jesus added, behold, I have come to do your will. And in so doing, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Pay attention to that, that verse, that second part of verse 9. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down today. 
as we summarize verses 5 through 10, the sacrifice of Christ canceled the old system. Again, this is summary. But it's the author making sure that his audience fully understands what it is he has shared with them so that they, they, they recognize when he begins to call them into action, when he begins to call them to live in faith, and, and when he calls them to endure, that they're doing so based on sound doctrine and the true things of God. So he's telling them, yet again, the sacrifice of Christ canceled the old system. In previous parts of the book, he's used words like the old system is obsolete or it's vanishing. Christ came into the world not to offer sacrifices like the old high priest. He, he came to give his own life as the ultimate sacrifice. That's the, the difference. And so doing the sacrifices of the old system, and they're, they're displaced by Jesus. And, and Jesus, fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled God's will by offering himself as a sacrifice. And it was a once and for all sacrifice that canceled the old system. It's not an indictment on the old system. The old covenant served a purpose for a season. It had a, it had a purpose, but now... Christ is mediating a better covenant. Unlike the old system, believers are now sanctified. The inside, there's purity that is made available once and for all through the offering of Jesus Christ. I heard one, one theologian put it this way. He said, believers now stand in the realm of the holy by virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They are clean before God instead of being defiled. This was revolutionary. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, it says in verse 10. And I know that word sanctify is a church word. Probably you're familiar with, with what it means, but it, 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 very basically the word sanctify means to be made holy, to be set apart from sin for God. And when Christ came fulfilling the will of God, he provided for the believer a continuing permanent condition of holiness. What this means is that any pathway to forgiveness outside of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is a failure. Only Jesus' death, only in the death of Jesus do we find cleansing in the heart of its sin. Only in the death of Jesus do we have assurance of right relationship with God. Any other method, any other method outside of Christ ultimately can be boiled down to relying on human effort. Any other pathway to forgiveness or to righteousness or to salvation apart from Christ ultimately relies on human effort and human ability and human strength, and it's going to fail. Thomas Schreiner said, any pathway to forgiveness outside of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ does not avail. Only Jesus' death truly cleanses the heart of its sin and provides assurance of a right relationship with God. And so they, they, they look at this, this psalm, this 40th psalm. Listen to the psalm, the 40th psalm, in a different translation that's not quite so clunky. This quotation in verses 5, 6, and 7. Here's what the New Living Translation, here's how it translates those three verses. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You are not pleased with burnt offerings or offerings for sin. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. And so this, this, this indictment of the ineffectiveness of sacrifices is not contained in the Old Testament to Psalm 40. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you know that there's language all throughout the Old Testament that talks about how what God really, God's really not after sacrifices. He's actually after something greater than that. And so even this original audience that would have received this, this writing from the author of Hebrews would have had a recognition that the, the, the ultimate wasn't going to be animal sacrifice. Just listen to some of the, the well-known passages in the Old Testament 
and, and how these passages speak about the, the ineffectiveness, ultimately, of sacrifice. The very famous prayer of King David, in fact, Psalm 51, caught in sexual sin, he, he, he comes before God, there's this beautiful prayer of repentance before the living God, and he says in, in, in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice, God, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, he says. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David understood this concept. Samuel, when he's confronting King Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, he says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? No, he says, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Or consider God's word through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, the ram, of rams and the fat, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats, the Lord says. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, stop bringing meaningless offerings. And so there's this idea that, yes, the sacrifice of Christ canceled an old system that was inefficient, it was ineffective, it didn't accomplish what it was supposed to. God wanted the heart of men and women, not an external obedience. He wasn't concerned about external cleansing, but a purity of heart. And so we have this idea here that Christ alone is sufficient to perfect people for all time. Okay, so we, we know what the old system couldn't do. So then the author moves on to, so then what does Jesus do? Like, how does, how does Jesus accomplish this, this thing that's greater than the old system? Look at verses 11 through 14. He says, every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Look at the, 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 the language of permanence contained here in verses 12 and verse 13. It's a once and for all, or as the author uses it, for all time. Look at verse 12. Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice. Verse 13. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is a once and for all, the greater sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. Here's the third thing I'd encourage you to write down. We see simply the superiority of Christ's sacrifice, and that it results in sanctification. The superiority of Christ's sacrifice results in sanctification. You could use the word perfection or purity or any of the other words the author has used up to this point. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we see those words, perfected and sanctified, in our, in our verse. In, I think we have to notice the tense of these verbs in verse 11 and 12, or 12 and 13, rather. It says in verse 12 that he has, he has perfected for all time. That's past tense. So it's done. The perfecting work of Christ is done. But then he says in verse 13 that those who are being sanctified, that's present tense, that's an ongoing. So there's this, this nature of the, pec, the purifying, sanctifying work of Christ. On one regard it is done, and on another regard it is being done. 
Those who are in Christ have been declared righteous by his sacrifice. Christ has purified them for all time, according to the author. And you and I also know that on this side of glory, those of us who've been declared righteous by Christ, we've come to faith in Jesus, and we've gone from death to life, and and he's taken our sin, and he's given us his righteousness. We, We are in this process of sanctification. God is molding us and shaping us and sanctifying us and conforming us into the image of Christ. But the declaration of righteousness is sealed. It's done. We've, as he says, we, he has perfected for all time. Jesus, and this once and for all sacrifice, it, it completed the sacrificial system. It was the final sacrifice accomplishing once and for all what all the previous sacrifices could not accomplish. His sacrifice was superior to all others. And then the author requotes Psalm 110 indirectly in verse 12. He sat down at the right hand of God, and then in verse 13, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is a picture of the return of Christ. This is an eschatological vision in this text that Christ is coming back, and there will be a, a moment of consummation when all the enemies will be made a footstool under the feet of Christ. But now he is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is done. It's abundantly clear that Jesus' sacrificial work is completed. And, and there's that very obvious contrast between the earthly priest and Christ our high priest. It's very intentional in verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily at a service, but Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Jesus offered a single sacrifice. These sacrifices can never take away sins, but Christ for all time has taken away sins and made perfect those who draw near to him. The work necessary for the forgiveness, for salvation, for sanctification, it's 100% completed. Though the laundry piles up, and you and I don't, we have a hard time understanding work being fully and perfectly completed, or the words we've been using is sufficient and perfected. When we use the word sufficient, there's this picture of there is, it, it lacks nothing. It's sufficient. The, and that's really the overarching, what the author of Hebrews, many have argued that the main theme of Hebrews is just for the audience and for you and us today, but then them also to, to see the sufficiency of Christ, that he lacks nothing. Though there was, there was faults in the old covenant, the, the, the new covenant, and the work of Christ is fully and perfectly sufficient. It lacks nothing, and it's perfect. It has no fault. That's the picture over and over again the author has painted for us. We don't, there's nothing in our world. We live in a world where there are the laws of entropy is, is, is causing springs to unwind and paint to chip and bones to grow old and arthritis to settle in. For you and I to understand a, a definitive, eternal, perfect completion of work, we, there's no frame of reference for us. Nothing. But the author has said a hundred different ways that this is a once and for all perfect work that God has done through his son. What could never be done by the sacrificial system has now been done perfectly in Christ. We can rest in the work that Christ has done for us. That assurance of knowing that we have been declared righteous, of knowing that through Christ and through his work for us on the cross, that we have been declared righteous, we've been made perfect. If we can, if we can grasp that, if we can come to that reality, that understanding, that posture, it changes everything. 
It changes how we approach our, our daily walk with the Lord. We kind of have just two options, don't we, when it comes to our walk with, with Jesus? We can operate under assurance of believing that he is sufficient and he is perfect and he is enough and, and I'm trusting in his work fully. Or we can operate under fear, believing that there's something I have to do, there's something more I need to bring to the table, always worried. He's going to turn his back on us. And we're going to commit the 7,777th sin, and then we're going to be out. Then he's just going to be finished with us. So there's two ways of operating. One is a get-to offering. I've been so loved by God, I've been declared righteous through him, through his perfect work, through his sufficient work. I've been declared righteous, and now as a redeemed, saved individual, I get to give my life back to God as an act of worship that he might be glorified. That's one way. And the other one is a must-to, a must-do obligation. Oh God, if I don't do these nine things today, you're going to turn your back on me. You're no longer going to love me. I'm going to slip out of your favor. I'm going to lose my salvation. I'm going to be forgotten. And you know what's crazy? Whether you're in camp one or camp two, it looks exactly the same on the outside. Isn't that crazy? Whether you are giving your life to God as a free will offering to worship him, laying down your life saying, you tell me whatever you need me to do, I'm, I'm going to give my life to you, God, because of your saving work in me. And, and that looks exactly the same on the outside as the person who is compulsively trying desperately to earn the love of God and, and build a ladder to him. It looks the same. Uh, my son, he's got a car that... that the spring on his car broke, and it's an import, and there's no place in Klamath Falls to fix it, and we just can't figure out how to get it over here. You don't want to pay the $400 to have it towed, and so he's been walking around Klamath Falls for the last couple months. He's a track and field athlete. He's going to be just fine, and, uh, and he's so proud or embarrassed to ask for a ride, and so he walks like four miles to church and walks home. I'm like, just ask for a ride, dude. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, just ask for a ride. Has, no one's pulled over and asked to help, and then I realized you know, when you're, when you're driving down the road and you see someone walking down the road, we have no idea why they're walking. They might be out for a pleasure cruise. Like, hey, it's a beautiful evening in Medford or Klamath Falls in my son's case. And I'm just going to go for a walk and I'm going to enjoy the sun and the birds in the air. Or the person whose spring has broken their car, they're walking as a way to get somewhere to earn something. When you drive by them casually, it looks exactly the same on the outside. It's impossible to tell the internal motivation. One is a joyous get-to offering to the Lord. And the other is a must-do obligation. I had a friend many years ago who shared a poem. I don't know if it's an original or if it's something she quoted. If you're a poetry person and this is familiar to, to you, I'd love the reference. But here's the quote. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. I love that picture of the gospel. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings in utter freedom under the lavish and salvific love of God. We get to live for him, for his glory, not compulsively trying to earn his love, but worshiping him with our every molecule and fiber. Believers are to look to Christ and not themselves for a clean conscience. Full forgiveness of sins and total flawlessness are found in him. And so it's freeing to know, verse 14, it's freeing to know that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I appreciate what John Piper writes about that. Listen to this. John Piper says, you can have assurance that you stand perfected and completed in the eyes of your heavenly Father, not because you are perfect now, 
but precisely because you are not perfect now, but are being sanctified, being made holy, that by faith in God's promises, you are moving away from your lingering imperfection toward more and more holiness. And so we've, we've reviewed a lot of what we've covered. We, we've seen that the shadow of the old system points to Christ. We've seen that the sacrifice of Christ canceled the old system. We've seen the superiority of Christ's sacrifice results in sanctification. We're beginning to understand that Christ alone is sufficient to perfect people for all time. And that takes us to our last few verses, verses 15 through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, and after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. For the second time in the book of Hebrews, the author directly quotes Jeremiah 31. Last time he quoted it in chapter 8. And look at, what the, look at what the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah. Pay attention to verse 17 and 18. What did the Lord say? This is the, this is the result of his new covenant that he promised in Christ. I will put my laws in their hearts. I'll write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What is distinctive about the new covenant is this forgiveness of sins peace. And so lastly and finally, we see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice assures forgiveness. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice assures forgiveness. Final forgiveness promised in the new covenant is now fully realized. God promised it through the prophets in Christ has fulfilled it. In the old reality, as we've learned over and over again, there was necessarily continual sacrifice and fearful obedience. But in this new reality, no more sacrifice because Christ's once and for all sacrifice is sufficient. And there's, and there's faithful assurance and freedom. In this new reality, as we've chatted in previous weeks, we recognize that we still struggle with sin. And a part of working out our salvation on this side of heaven, on this side of glory, is learning to deal with our sin. What do we do with this, the ongoing sin in our lives? We've been declared righteous, we, we've been perfected by Christ, but my lived experience on this side of glory is that there is still sin in my life. What do I do with that? And we've talked about it in previous weeks. I'm, I'm just mindful of this old thing we, we often say in, in the church that the Christian faith does not call us to sin management. That's not what we're called to. And if we reduce the scriptures or even the Christian faith into like a, a handbook for life that helps us manage our sin, we, we get it wrong. There's no way to manage sin. We don't, we're not called to manage sin. It's called to kill it. It's the gospel. It's only in and through the work of Christ that our sin is put to death. And if you're like me, my guess is that for those of you that, that walk with Jesus, my guess is that there was a time in your life when before you came to faith in Christ that you, there were sins that were present in your life. There's a godlessness that existed in your life and then you came to faith in Christ and the Spirit of God indwelt you and you, you were regenerated, you were declared righteous, you, were, you, you became a child of God and you began to walk with God. And my guess is, if your story is at all like mine, that there were some sin issues in your life that God, by the power of His Spirit, just cleaned up. And you can't get, take credit for it. You just look back a couple years later and you're like, oh my goodness, like God, you totally removed that struggle of mine. That, that temptation, that sin struggle, that issue in my life, like you just lifted that. Gosh, to God be the glory. And it's amazing when he does that. 
Also, if you're like me, my guess is that there are a couple areas in your life, maybe one or two, key areas where God has chosen not to remove the habitual sin struggle. He's chosen to allow you to to buckle under the pressure of an ongoing sin struggle, and he's done so out of grace to remind you that you're not earning yourself anywhere, that it's only in and through him that you can put sin to death, to remind you of your weakness. I think sometimes the habitual sin struggles in my life that that dog me, that that drive me crazy, I shared some last week, it reminds me like, oh, I need Jesus. If I could just get up today and I didn't need, I didn't need moment by moment, day by day, surrender and confession and repentance, then I probably would, knowing me and my heart and the human condition, I would probably convince myself very quickly that I don't need Jesus. And so you, we probably never think about habitual sin struggles in our life as a grace, but it very likely could be God's grace in your life de- reminding you of your dependence upon him. Because doing things in our own strength always fails. For a season, we might be able to white-knuckle obedience and righteousness. And even if everything on the outside looks great, man, you and I both know our heart. And so we just can't, we can't fool God. We know that. So you know what we got to do is we, you know, how, how, do we, how do we deal with those areas of habitual sin? My guess is there's some folks in here today, you've got an area in your life of unrepentant habitual sin right now. An area of sin in your life that you just cannot understand how to kill it. And it's like, and it's, it's, it's demoralizing and it's difficult. How do we do it? How do we confront habitual sin? And again, it's like the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the gospel. But I'm just mindful of, of the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians. I'm just going to read directly from 2 Corinthians. Now, again, we, we don't know if the thorn in his flesh was physical ailment, which it probably was, or maybe it was a habitual sin. We don't really know. But I think Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, his words about how he, was, how he had to struggle through this thorn in his flesh, I think it gives us a good heart posture for how to think of areas in our life, maybe thorns in your flesh, if you want to talk metaphorically, of habitual sin. I think Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10 can be helpful. Let's, let's read that. Beginning in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly with my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I would argue that the key to overcoming habitual sin begins by recognizing the power to do so does not come from within. It comes from without. We don't manage sin. Jesus kills sin. The gospel kills sin. He nailed our sins to the cross. And so we bring our sin to him in desperate dependency. We, we boast in our weaknesses because we recognize apart from him at work in our life, we're never going to overcome these sins. We're never going to manage through this season of struggle and difficulty. We bring it to him. At the end of the day, doing, doing any sort of 
work in the area of habitual sin in our lives, if we do it in a me-centered way or if it's a, a, a compulsive, obligatory, me-centered human effort, it's going to fail. Our text puts our eyes and our hope on the one who has the power to put sin to death. And so if, if you find yourself today battling with an area of habitual sin struggle, we, it's just the cliche answer, but it's like your hope is the gospel. In and through Christ, he puts sin to death. In and through Christ, we've been perfected. Our hope is in him. The law says do. The gospel says done. Christ alone is sufficient to perfect people once and for all. And so that's the review. The author has reviewed basically five or six chapters of of Hebrews before he gets into this this sort of new section. He's just told us that the the shadow of the old system points us to Christ. He said that the sacrifice of Christ, it canceled the old covenant or the old system. The superiority of Christ's sacrifice, it provides security. We can trust in Christ. And the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, it assures forgiveness because of who he is. And so on this Mother's Day, I'm very mindful, again, of motherhood. And the moms in my life. And maybe maybe you in this moment could just be mindful of the moms in your life. I reflect back on my upbringing, and as you know, my mom is fighting cancer, and it's like, I get the sense that my mom, she turns 76 next, next month, and I, I, I know that time is short, regardless. It's always short. And I've been reflecting back on her a lot, my mom. I'm thankful that she was consistent in my life. I would lift my eyes up from a football field, and she'd be on the sidelines. Still to this day, when I have something good happen in my life, she's the first person I want to call. I've learned to appreciate the sacrifices that my mother made over the years. My mom is one of these people, and I know I've shared with you in the past, who has overcome so much. Her resolve to fight for Christ's likeness and to overcome sin struggles in her life is so encouraging. And as I look back over the course of my life growing up, I recognize that my mom put her needs on the back burner to care for us kids, and she loved us regardless of our foolishness. I'm thankful for that. I think I've probably learned the most about motherhood from my own wife. Husbands, can you attest? I've watched my wife over the last 22 years be the mother to our kids. And I've seen the millions of hidden and unseen ways she sacrifices for our kids continually. Loving them, supporting our kids, disciplining them, encouraging them, nurturing them, directing them, teaching them, leading them. And she did this over the course of 22 years, almost all of the time, unbeknownst to our kids. They didn't, they didn't recognize the hard, the prayers, the, the faithfulness, the hard work, the sacrifice that my wife made. And now I have the great blessing as a dad of watching my own daughter be a mother. I watch my, my daughter love and care for her son, Wilson, who's so funny. He's so funny. Little Wilson, he's going to be three next month. And I watch him just live a carefree life. He's living in lavish love, and he's entirely oblivious to the countless ways his mom is always working on his behalf, always working on his behalf. I see my daughter, who's a full-time student, a college athlete, works uh, every summer. I see her budgeting every dollar. I see her budgeting every minute to maximize her time with her son. That's her priority. She'll tuck him in, and at great personal cost to her, she, she will do everything to spend time with him, teaching him and nurturing him and disciplining him and encouraging him and directing him and leading him and loving him. I see her modeling patience that she did not learn from her dad. I watch her as she helps her, her little boy manage his emotions through the terrible twos. She's, I've never seen her lose her cool, ever, not once. 
She keeps her tongue and her tone in check, and she's calm and loving in the most frustrating of moments. I watch her study late in the night. She tucks her son in. She goes and sits out in her room. She puts her laptop off. She's taking 18 credits a semester. Full-time athlete, full-time mom. She's incredible. She's like, I, I'm so inspired by her. And she does all this. She's always working, and she does so because she wants to make a better future for her son and herself. She's pursuing higher education. And I watch her read the Bible to her son and pray for him, disciple him, model a godly lifestyle, teach him how to pray. And, and today, Wilson is oblivious to all the work his mom does on his behalf. He's, un, he's unaware of how every moment is being stewarded for his benefit. She's un, he's unaware of all the ways she's abdicating on his behalf, loving him and sacrificing for him. He just joyously gets to live in lavish love. He gets to live freely under the truth of that sacrificial love. And one day, like 47-year-old Paul, he'll be able to lift his eyes up and he'll be able to see his mom and recognize the sacrifices and appreciate her all the more. How much greater is the love of God in Christ for you and me? How much greater is the work of God in Christ on your behalf and my behalf? How much far, how further reaching is his love? How much... How much more eternal is his grace? You and I, we get to live in lavish love. We get to live freely under the truth of God's sacrificial love in his son Christ. And this, our verses today, this summary of, of the gospel is just this great reminder of, the, of what our God has done on our behalf that we can live under the banner of his love freely. And so my hope is that, that, that God, by his Holy Spirit today, he just lifts your eyes and my eyes and we can begin to recognize the incredible, incredible love he has for us as revealed to us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so thankful for the book of Hebrews and for the way in which we get to look at, at gospel-rich texts every week. And God, I confess that as I look at the, the, the texts and they seem so repetitive that I want to come up with something crafty, something new to say that's different. But then I realize, God, this is your word. And you've revealed it to us in such a way. And our job is to faithfully read it and teach it and apply it to our lives. And so, God, I pray today as we, as we meditate on the truth of these words, God, as we think about the fact that, that, that the old system was a shadow that pointed us to Jesus, as we, as we think about... The, the sacrifice of Christ, the superiority uh, of that sacrifice, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, how it offers us forgiveness and, and allows us to be benefactors of this agape, self-sacrificing love. It's incredible, God. I pray that it would inform our worship, and I pray that it would transform our hearts. And, and God, I'm really mindful of those men and women today who, as we were speaking a few moments ago about habitual, ongoing sin struggles. God, you know each one of us better than we know ourselves. And, and God, you know we can't hide our sins from you. So God, I pray that you would remind us not to do that. God, rather than hide our sins from you and, and try to work out a self-focused life in pursuit of you, God, I pray that, that right now as your spirit gives us understanding, God, that we would, that we would rather than pull back and run from you, that we would run to you in our weakness, and we boast in the weakness as we lay all of our struggles at your feet. As we ask you anew to put the sins in our life to death, to fill us with your spirit, and to embolden us to live in such a way that you are glorified in us and through us, God. And when those sins want to creep back into our life in 11 seconds, God, help us to bring them to you again and again and again, to put sin to death, to lay down our very lives before you, God, that you would 
be glorified in us and through us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.